This is Chad Gervich, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 21, for Monday, May 16th, 2011. Well, today I am so, so excited to bring you an interview with TV writer-producer, best-selling author, and award-winning playwright, Chad Gervich. It's an amazing, very long, very packed interview. You're going to love it, I'm sure. But first, a few details. One of them is that another thing that I'm very excited about is the new TV Writer Chat. You may have heard of Script Chat. Script Chat is amazingly popular and a tremendous resource for feature writing. And uh, we are announcing and releasing this week the very first TV Writer Chat, which is a sister to Script Chat, just for TV writing. The the very first one actually started yesterday on Sunday, May 15th. You can find out all the details about that at tvwriterchat.com. It's every Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And you basically um, go on Twitter or there's a site where you can you can log in to chat about TV writing. And every week there will be a different topic. You can find out a list of topics at tvwriterchat.com. And uh, I'm very, very excited about it. Jamie Livingston, Zach Sandberg, Viviana from Script Chat and myself are all going to be involved rotating uh, as moderators for the TV Writer Chat um, and it's, it's very, 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 very cool. You can also, at any point in the week, just add the hashtag to your tweets on Twitter, uh, TV Writer Chat, very simple, and then they will go to other people who are following that hashtag. So very, very neat. Um, I want to remind you about TVWriterPodcast.com, where you can find all of the 21 episodes that we've done for the TV Writer Podcast. There's lots of great ones. In particular, if you haven't checked out the Social Media and the Writer Roundtable podcast, episodes 19 and 20, definitely check those out. Um, some amazing, amazing information there that will help you in your TV writing work. Um, also, there's the Twitter database there, which is 700 writers so far and continuing to climb. Have Twitter addresses that you can follow in handy little links or as individual writers. Also, always, always, always go to Script Magazine and find out a huge pile of resources, especially uh, Gene Bowerman's uh, Balls of Steel articles are very helpful. And also Chad Gervich, as a TV writer, um, posts many articles there. Uh, well, about Chad Gervich, here's a bio. Uh, we had so much to cover. I wanted to make sure to um, do the bio now so that we have a little bit of background information about Chad before we start. Um, Chad Gervich is a TV writer, producer, best-selling author, and award-winning playwright who currently has a comedy development deal with 20th Century Fox. He is also writing and producing for After Lately, E's half-hour hit comedy starring Chelsea Handler. As a writer and producer, Chad created Style Network's hit comedy reality show, Foodie Call, before going on to write, produce, and develop shows, both scripted and reality, for ABC, Fox, Warner Brothers, Endemol, E! Overbrook, Super Delicious, CBS Studios, True TV, Zoo Productions, Fox Reality Channel, Renegade 83, Food Network, and The Weinstein Company. I'm sure you've heard of a whole pile of those. His credits include Wipeout, 
Cupcake Wars, Reality Binge, Speeders, and others. Prior to producing, Chad spent five years as a development executive with the Littlefield Company, former NBC president Warren Littlefield's production company, developing pilots and series for NBC, ABC, UPN, the WB, and Paramount TV. Chad also worked in production on shows such as The Wanda Sykes Show, Star Search, The Academy Awards, and Malcolm in the Middle. As an author, Chad's best-selling TV writing handbook, Small Screen, Big Picture, A Writer's Guide to the TV Business, debuted in 2008 to critical acclaim and outstanding sales and is presently being used as a textbook in the CBS Diversity Writers Program, the WGA Showrunners Training Program, NBC's Writers on the Verge, NAPI's Diversity Fellowship, California State, and USC's TV classes. Lots of places. Chad currently writes Script Magazine's popular weekly primetime blog, the most viewed page on the magazine's website, and, and contributes regularly to many other publications, including Daily Variety. In addition, he created and produced Morning Call Time, Hollywood's first daily audio news podcast. One of Chad's passions is teaching. With a playwriting MFA from UCLA, he has spent years teaching writing and producing classes for Media Bistro, Gotham Writers Workshop, Writing Pad and Stories Studio Chicago, as well as lecturing at colleges and schools such as UCLA and Vanderbilt. He also speaks at festivals and conferences such as the TV and Film Summit and the Great American Pitch Fest. Wow, lots and lots and lots of stuff. He's represented by APA in Los Angeles. And boy, you're going to find out from Chad, he has done so many things in so many different pockets of the industry um, he just has a great wealth of knowledge to share with us, and you're going to love the interview. You can, you can follow Chad on Twitter, at Chad Gervich, and you can go to his website, chadgervich.com, for lots of other great resources. But here we go, my interview with Chad Gervich. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with television writer-producer, best-selling author, and award-winning playwright, Chad Gervich. How are you doing, Chad? Pretty good, Gray. How's it going? I'm doing really, really well, and I'm so excited that you could be on the podcast, and I wish we had 10 hours. Um, <laughs> we only have about an hour, and there's a lot to cover, and I'm re really, really, really fascinated by your particular story because... Um, and we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But because most Hollywood writers focus on one thing, either they are in scripted or they're in reality. And even if they're in scripted, they might only do procedurals. Um, and once you get on a certain track, you follow that track. And, and your story is very, very interesting because you've done plays, because you've done reality, because you've done scripted, because you've done development, you've been an executive. And so I'd, I'm really excited for what you can share with us. Um, in, in terms of how working in all those different spheres has, uh, has educated you about ho Hollywood. Um, but first we're going to go way back and, and start with how you got started. Um, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in LA? No, I actually grew up, uh, in Iowa in a small town called Iowa Falls of about, uh, 5,000 people, mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the cornfields of Iowa. Wow. So cornfields of Iowa. Um, did you already know at that point that you wanted to do plays? Um, well, you know, ever since I was uh, you know, as young as I can possibly remember, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to tell stories. And you know, I can remember when I was little, I mean, probably like seven or eight years old, 
I was obsessed with the mo- this movie, Escape from Witch Mountain, which I used to, this old Disney movie that I used to love. Oh, I love that one. And uh, it was so good. It's so much better than the remake, too. Uh-huh. But I used to love this movie, and I uh, I would write stories. I would write, like, my own little sequels to it and then bind them and take them up to our public library to put on the shelves. No. Yeah, and they uh, yeah, up until a few years ago, they still had them there. I would go When I would go home, I would go look. Wow. Um, but so, I, you know, I don't know that I necessarily knew immediately that I wanted to be a playwright, um, but I knew that I loved telling stories, and I always loved movies and storytelling um, from as young as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And so when did you start writing plays? I mean, probably like fifth or sixth grade, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents always took me and I have a younger brother and we were constantly going to plays. And, you know, in, in the middle of Iowa, there wasn't always a ton of theater. There was community theater and we always saw the community theater plays and we had a community college and we always supported their theater. But my parents would always, I mean, we would drive to Des Moines or Chicago or Minneapolis, we would drive hours to go see, um, you know, a touring production or even a local production in those cities of a play. And so, you know, I don't remember the first play that I saw or the first time I decided I wanted to write plays, but from a really young age, I was just kind of in love with the theater and performance and watching stories come alive on a stage or on a screen. I just always loved it. I can remember once my parents, I mean, I don't know, I was probably third, fourth, fifth grade, asked me if I wanted to have a birthday party for my birthday or go to uh, Des Moines to see this play that was coming through. And I chose going to the play. <laughs> um, and I just always loved it. I always I always loved that. And so then, you know, probably around fourth or fifth grade, I started writing little plays for my friends to put on. I, I used to shoot movies. I used to write movies that I would then shoot with my dad's little silent movie camera. This was before video cameras. Oh, cool. But I don't know if it was before video cameras, but it was before we had a video camera. Mm-hmm. And then as I got more into junior high and high school, and we really started having student productions, I really started getting into it. I, I wrote our high school play one year. And then when I got into college, I went to Vanderbilt for college in Nashville. Mm-hmm. That's when I really stepped it up full force and started writing some plays that were produced at Vanderbilt. I spent a semester at the Eugene, at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, which was incredible, writing plays there. And that's where I really kind of dove in. Mm-hmm. And then from there, UCLA. So Yes. Uh, so what, did you go to UCLA for playwriting? Yes. The reason I went to UCLA for playwriting was you could only, I think this is still true at UCLA, uh, that you could only, when you were applying, you had to choose. You could only apply to one program at a time, playwriting or screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And the playwriting students were allowed to take screenwriting classes, but the screenwriters were not allowed to take playwriting classes. Interesting. Which, which was so interesting and ridiculous to me. And I uh-huh. recently found out that was a decision of the playwriting department, that the screenwriters would all love to take playwriting classes, but the playwriting department doesn't allow them, which is, which is ridiculous. To wow. Me. And so I applied to the playwriting program. At that point, I'd had some plays produced around the country, and you know, I'd been writing plays, and so I figured I would go to the playwriting program and then take some screenwriting classes, which is what I did. Uh, what was interesting was I always thought that I wanted to write movies, mm-hmm. but when I took the screenwriting classes, I loved the classes. I loved the teachers. I loved the other students, but I didn't, for whatever reason, love the process of writing 
movies. I just didn't connect with it, with the storytelling for some reason, in the same way that I loved telling stories that were going to be told on a stage. Mm -hmm. And I really, I mean, it was kind of surprising to me because I'd expected to love it because I loved movies and I loved writing and I thought I had come out here to write for the movie. And so I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And then in my final year at UCLA, at the time, they had a mentor program for graduating grad students where they would match up graduating grad students with working professionals. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to this mentor program and ended up getting as my mentor, Warren Littlefield, who at the time wow. was president of NBC Entertainment. <laughs> um, Crazy. It was amazing. And for anyone listening who doesn't know who Warren was, I mean, he was president of NBC for virtually all of the 90s. He developed Seinfeld, Frasier, Will and Grace, ER, Law and Order. You know, so, I mean, it was truly like getting the crown jewel of the mentors. And he was the first one who had said to me after reading some of my plays, have you ever thought about writing television? And I said, no, UCLA doesn't have any TV writing classes. Now they do, but at the time they didn't. I've never really thought about it. And he said, well, why don't you tell me what your favorite shows are? I'll get you some scripts. I'll teach you how to study them. You know, you'll write a couple specs and we'll take it from there. And so kind of under his guidance and the guidance of a man named Jeff Harris, who ran Warren's story department, I wrote my first two specs. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, you've sat in a lot of chairs your entire life. And then one day you sit down in the most comfortable chair you've ever sat in. And I loved it. I loved the process of writing them. I loved studying them. I loved everything. You know, I loved the fact that I was writing characters who I was already in love with and was going to live with on television for a long time after that. Even though I wasn't writing for the shows, I was just watching them. It was great. And I... I literally never looked back and have just been completely immersed in the world of television ever since. Wow. And so you worked for Littlefield Company for about five years. Yes. When I graduated from UCLA, it was right around the time that Warren left NBC to start the Littlefield Company, which was his production company in partnership with NBC Studios. And when he opened those doors, he hired me as a creative executive slash assistant to the head of development and talent at his company, a woman named Jen Faltings. And I worked as her assistant for about a year and a half, mm-hmm. which was amazing. I mean, first of all, Warren and everybody who worked at that company was terrific. And it was the grad school that I didn't have. I mean, it was such an education in the television industry and how shows are developed, how they're put together pilots being shot, staffing season. I mean, it was just an education in all of that. Mm-hmm. And also, I will say this, an education, you know, Warren is such a stand-up guy and a great executive and a creative thinker. It was also just kind of an education in the kind of person you want to be and work with in this industry. Mm. So anyway, I worked there as an assistant for about a year and a half and then left when we lost our deal with NBC Studios. Oh, you, you left after a year and a half? I left after a year and a half, but ended coming ended up coming back two years later mm-hmm. as uh, as a full executive. And I worked there for like another two and a half, three years. Wow! And in the time that I was gone, I spent a year and a half working as a director's assistant on shows like Malcolm in the Middle. We did a David Kelly show called Girls Club. I was working for Todd Holland, mm-hmm. who is a huge director and just an incredibly talented director and producer. And that was a whole other education and other facets of 
filmmaking and television. Mm-hmm. I worked on the new Star Search when that came back with Arsenio Hall. I worked as a writer's assistant on a Fox show, which was picked up for 13 episodes and never made it on the air. Oh, no. So then I ended up coming back to Littlefield as an exec mm-hmm. and worked there developing scripted shows and reality shows for two and a half, three years. And what finally happened in the summer of 2005 you know, Warren had wanted to break into reality television. We'd been doing scripted, and he wanted to break into reality. Mm-hmm. And I ended up creating uh, this little reality show that got picked up to series on Style Network. And that was that was Foodie Call? That was Foodie Call, yeah. Mm-hmm. I flopped over from being an executive to being a producer on that show with Warren and the two showrunners who we had hired to run that show. Very and, cool. And uh, that was the beginning of writing and producing. Neato. That was a really long, long-winded answer. I hope that wasn't boring. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I mean, it's great. It, it, it really shows, especially for people outside of Hollywood, just how crazy um, the kind of career paths can be, and yet it all makes sense because every single thing you were doing, you learned a different aspect of the industry that helped you later. I, I did. I absolutely learned a different aspect of of TV and filmmaking at every step. It was also incredibly important. Almost everybody who breaks into this industry has to work as an assistant for several years. It's really the training ground for TV and TV writing and TV producing or being an executive. What I think also was really educational was it doesn't matter what job you have in this industry. Mm-hmm. You are essentially – no. there is no job stability here. None. Zero. You can be an executive at the oldest company. You can be an executive at NBC, at CBS. There is no job stability. You know, jobs can typically, you know, it's not unusual for a job to last a year or only two or three years for somebody, even at a very solid company. Um, people bounce around all the time. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. So now it was, you you have a a long list of of networks you've worked for and and credits and things like that and is that just kind of a mixture of the stuff that you've developed and and written for and and was it all through that time uh, like part of it through Littlefield and and uh, and part of it after when I was at Littlefield you know we originally had that deal with NBC Studios and we then had our deal with Paramount mm-hmm. the Littlefield company now has a deal with ABC Studios. I obviously don't work there anymore. But when we were at NBC Studios and Paramount Studios, we were able to sell shows to any network. You know, in theory, we were set up to sell to CBS and NBC, but we were we sold shows to, you know, we did pilots for Fox. When we were at Paramount, we did, we did shows for UPN, ABC, Fox. I think we did some for NBC even when we were at Paramount. But then when I left, the Littlefield Company and actually started writing, producing, that's really when I started working. And look, when you're a writer or producer in Hollywood, especially in television, it doesn't matter how successful you are. You are a freelancer. Mm -hmm. You can be the most successful showrunner on the planet. You are a freelancer. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you might, look, you might be running uh, Law & Order SVU, you know, uh, or CSI, or one of the most successful long-running shows on television. When that show ends, you are out of a job. Yeah. You will have to find another job. And your show could end this year. It could end next year. Your contract could not be renewed. You know, you can be Seth MacFarlane, who has, you know, the richest TV deal in TV history. 
when that deal expires, he might renew with 20th Century Fox or he can go somewhere else. It doesn't matter how big you are. You are a freelancer. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly bouncing around between shows, between companies, between networks and studios. So in the time that I've been writing and producing, yeah, I mean, I have worked for, I worked for Fox, the Food Network, True TV, you know, the Weinstein Company, Warner Brothers. I, I mean, again, I'm not looking at the same list you're looking at, but mm. you, you just bounce between all of these different companies. And, and sometimes uh, I've heard cases uh, where when you're doing really, really well, they say, oh, let's have you go start this other new show. And then that show dies and you're not with the place that you were doing really, really well anymore. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because the look, the, the brass ring that everybody, the gold ring that everybody's trying to, to reach for is to create your own show. Mm -hmm. But in order to have the opportunity to create your own show, you have to put, you often have to put whatever job you're working at on the line. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's very tough. And most new shows don't go. I mean, look, every year the networks and the studios develop you know, 100 to 150 new series, you know, and those are just script commitments that they're having writers write. But of those 100 to 150 new shows developed every year by the, and that's by the major broadcast networks and studios, look, only what, maybe eight of them ever actually get on the air? Mm -hmm. And of those eight shows, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, maybe two of them survive their first season without getting canceled and maybe one of them actually becomes a hit wow you know but the rest of those are never heard of or seen again most yeah. of them never make it to the screen and yet there are thousands of writers who are working <laughs> that whole time i mean li literally all, all those 150 scripts um people got paid to write them yes yes absolutely absolutely but but it's tough i mean if you think about it I assume, just to make the numbers easy, assume there are five broadcast networks and each of them is developing 100 scripts. Mm -hmm. Each of them is developing 100 scripts per year. And then they all have writers on the shows that are already on the air. That's that's not very many jobs for for an entire industry. I mean, you know, there's, there's maybe, what, a thousand writer jobs? I'm sure the Writers Guild has actual numbers on this. Mm -hmm. But... That's a tiny number of jobs. I mean, all of the people in this city, in Los Angeles, and out there in the world who want to write in television, hundreds of thousands are competing for essentially a few hundred jobs that pop up every single year. And most of those jobs aren't going to the newcomers who are maybe incredibly talented or incredibly passionate. Most of those jobs are going to veterans who have been working at this or trying to work at this for years and years and years and years. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny number of jobs that are available and many, 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 many people looking to fill them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not like the medical field or the law field where you can work anywhere and there are con there are always going to, you know, there, there are doctor jobs in every city and writer jobs in every city. You know, this is an industry that exists in one town and mm -hmm. one town only and it's there are only a very select number of spots uh, for people to work in. And so if you want to be one of those spots, you have to plan your career and play your cards very carefully. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I think it does bear mentioning that in features, I would say that it's even more so. Um, there's probably 
five times as many trying to write spec features and only about what three or four hundred shows or three or four hundred movies at best being made per year um i'll be honest i don't know anything about features uh-huh. i mean that sounds right to me but i you know i always read articles in script magazine about the spec market's no good and and i i i don't know anything i couldn't i don't know anything about movies mm-hmm. i yeah i just i i don't i can't even really talk about it <laughs> okay well let's uh, let's move on a little bit and um Let's see. What, what should we hit first? First, maybe, what, why don't you tell us a little bit about After Lately um, that uh, you've been working on recently? or, or And actually, between 2005 and now, um, what led to that show and, and uh, other projects of note in that time? When Foodie Call got picked up by the Style Network, and I swapped over to produce that. I mean, that was a blast. and mm-hmm. such an incredible learning experience. I never set out to work in reality television. But when Foodie Call was picked up, it's you know it's something that happened that I embraced and ran with, mm-hmm. and I learned an incredible amount and loved working in reality and still do love reality. I mean, it is anybody who says it is not an art form. You know, I feel like people still sneeze at reality a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but it is 100% an art form. It is a different art form than storytelling in the scripted world, but it's an art form as created and crafted and written as anything you'll see on Grey's Anatomy or the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, I feel like my career has kind of been, you know, it's my writing producing career started with Foodie Call, which was obviously the, a reality show, which I created and was very creatively involved with. I do feel like my career has kind of been a path from reality back to the scripted world, mm. um, which, to be totally honest, is kind of where my heart has always been. Mm-hmm. You know, after Foodie Call, I EP'd a talk show pilot for the E Channel, which unfortunately did not get on the air, although it, it really it was a great pilot. It just didn't go. Um, but from there, I started moving towards some late night stuff, some sketch and alternative comedy work. Uh, I did some some online sitcoms. I did an online sitcom for Warner Brothers, which was literally we had a writer's room and it was run just like a uh, regular TV sitcom. Oh wow! It was short little episodes, short little webisodes for online. Did the same thing for a Fox show. So I feel like my path has been from the reality world back to the scripted mm-hmm. world. Well, and and then I imagine that uh, the online comedy led to after lately. No, it didn't actually. I'll tell you how After Lately came about. Well, uh, first of all, a couple of a couple of quick milestones. Um, I think that were important along that path from reality back to scripted. Mm-hmm. One uh, about three years ago, I wrote on a show called Reality Binge that mm-hmm. lasted for two seasons. Reality Binge was Fox wanted. It was actually um on the Fox Reality Channel, which no longer exists, but it was not a reality show. Mm-hmm. Um, Fox wanted to do their version of The Soup. And so Reality Binge was a carbon copy of the, of the soup. But mm-hmm. it looked like The Soup. It was the same concept as The Soup. Um, it, it was basically The Soup, which was always very frustrating to those of us who'd been hired as writers because we wanted to make our own show. But it, um, but one of the things that was very fun about that, and it did change from the soup because we were doing a, we were doing more sketches, we were going out and shooting bits on location a little more than the soup did, and it morphed a little bit into into something that was a cross kind of between a clip show and a sketch show. But what was important about that show 
was nobody watched it. Nobody ever saw that show. <laughs> but because nobody ever watched it, the network was really wonderful about giving us kind of the freedom to experiment and try things. And so we would do bits and sketches and jokes, a lot of which flopped, but some of which really landed and was really funny. Mm -hmm. And so that show was, I think, kind of like a pivotal move for me and starting to move from reality back to the world of scripted and comedy. Mm -hmm. And that was that was very important and learned so much on that show about what works, what doesn't work, trying things, dealing with the network. So that was really important. I think, honestly, the next, like another like important milestone for me came about a year and a half ago. I took a job on the Wanda Sykes show, mm -hmm. which was Wanda Sykes talk show on Fox. And, you know, look, the show never did particularly well. And I couldn't say that it was the best talk show on TV. Um, but the people I worked with there were incredible. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much. And here's the thing. I was not a writer on that show. I was a researcher. And I had been hired with another guy, Miles, um, who became a very good friend. We had been hired kind of in particular to put together or to help put together one part of the show. They were going to do a segment on that show, which was called the Wanda Rama, which was kind of Wanda's version of the soup, where she would use clips to, you know, she'd make fun of clips from the week's TV and use them to spin off into sketches and bits. And we were helping to put those together and find the clips and come up with the bits and write the sketches for all mm -hmm. of that. And one of the reasons that was, I think, such a pivotal moment, and I hope there's like a valuable lesson in here, was I took a huge pay cut when I went to work on the Wanda Sykes show. And in a way, um, like a like a title or credit demotion because I was a researcher. I, I, to be honest, I totally wanted to be a writer on that show. Mm -hmm. And when I went in and met with the showrunners, they said we'd, we'd like to consider you as a researcher. And I took the job even though, honestly, it was like a 70% pay cut. And wow. it wasn't the job I'd wanted. And, you know, I'd wanted to be a writer. And I was coming off of writing on Wipeout um, for ABC. And so I really wanted to be a writer. But I took the job anyway for a couple of reasons. One, I'm a huge Wanda Sykes fan. Mm -hmm. Two, it was a high-profile, and I really I wanted to be able to work with Wanda. Two, um, it was a high-profile network show that I knew was going to get some attention. Mm -hmm. Three, and maybe this is the most important part of it, I really, really wanted to work with the writers on that show. Mm. Uh, the showrunner was a guy, John Ridley, who had written a story for Three Kings and the novel that turned into U-Turn, and he wrote uh, Undercover Brother, which I'd really like. And so I really liked his work, and the other writers who they were hiring were terrific people who were coming out of off the Colbert Report, and just like great shows. And I wanted, even though I wasn't going to be a writer on that show per se, I really wanted to work with John Ridley and the other writers who were working on that show. And honestly, I think that I think taking that job, even though it was, you know, some people might consider it a step back, was huge because it was a great credit on my resume. It gave me incredible connections and friendships with amazingly talented people. And it was working, honestly, it was working with such a, a different caliber of writer and producer than I'd been working with on some of the other shows. And that's not to denigrate those other shows at all. It's just that these were writers who were, writing the kind of TV that I was really exciting about, excited about, and they were coming from 
great shows and had a different way of looking at jokes and comedy, and it was just an ed- it was a huge education. Mm. So, um, what what was special about how you got onto After Lately? You know, I was not involved with the creation or the development of After Lately. I was hired on as a producer once that show went to series. But I think what's really relevant about how I ended up uh, getting my foot in the door to get hired for After Lately was I had worked before on a couple projects with Brad Wallach, who was one of the co-EPs of After Lately, uh, and has worked for years with Borderline Amazing and Chelsea Handler. Borderline is Chelsea's company. Um, and he spent years over there with Chelsea and Tom Brunell, who runs the company alongside Chelsea. And so while they were looking for talented writers and producers to, uh, to, to write and produce the After Lately episode, it was my relationship with Brad Wallach that got me in the door for that job. Um, and I think what's really important about that is when you look back over virtually every single job I have ever had over the course of my career, I have gotten every single job I've ever had because of a relationship or a connection or a friendship with somebody. Fruity Call was obviously the show I created, and that was, you know, I was working at the Littlefield Company, but that show sold. One of the reasons that show sold is because Warren Littlefield, who was obviously the EP and the head of the Littlefield Company, had worked at NBC with Ted Harbert, who is the president, uh, was at the time the president of Ian e Style. And ever since then, when I look at all the shows, I worked on Speeders for True TV, and my hire on that show came out of a relationship with the president of the company. I went from there to a... Uh, show the C- a syndicated show that CBS Studios was working on, and I had worked with the showrunner before. Um, I went from there to Wipeout and got hooked up with the Wipeout people because I've been friends for years with the exec at ABC who was covering Wipeout, and we had lunch together one day, and he said they're looking for a new comedy producer, and uh, sent my sent my stuff over, and I was hired by that evening, and. After Lately was no different. It was a, a very, I got a long relationship with Brad, and he was one of the people responsible for interviewing and hiring producers for that show. So anyway, so I say all this because it just, I think it really pounds home the point that while you have to be a talented writer, and that comes first and foremost, it is of equal importance that you have a huge network of professional contacts and relationships. That, absolutely. I, I know... In the sphere of, of editing up in here in Toronto, it's it's no different. I very seldom use a resume anymore. It's more, um, I, I'm out with some friends who work in the industry, and they say, oh, this job is coming up, or that job is coming up, and they make a call, and, and 90% of the time, like, I've, I've actually been hired for jobs where they don't even ask what I did before, and they don't even ask whether I know how to work with the equipment they have or anything like that. It's just... Absolutely. Um, oh, Steve recommended you... When can you start? Yes, absolutely. And look, I I have great agents, and I love my agents. People are always asking, well, if you have an agent, you shouldn't need those relationships. I have a great, a great agent. I love my agents. My agents work really hard for me, but most of the jobs I've gotten, I have gotten because of my relationships, which does not mean that my agents aren't helpful. 
because they then come in, they do the deal, they make sure the deal protects me, they maybe get me more money or better protection or longer terms. But also my agents, when they're putting me up for jobs, you know, on the CBS studio show, and this was a few years ago, my agents put me up for that job. But then it was my relationship with the showrunner, who at the time they didn't even know was working on the show, that ended up stealing the deal. Hmm. And I can't tell you, Gray, how many times my agents will call me and they'll say, we're putting you up for this show. We're putting you up for that project. We're sending you into a meeting here. If you know anybody who knows these producers, if you have friends who work on this show, if you know anyone who knows this executive, have them call and put in a good word. Hmm. And so I'm constantly making my own contacts and networks and relationships, not only for my own sake, but to help my agents help me. And so, you know, for all those people who don't think that networking and don't think that relationships are important, A, you're wrong, and B, that's why it's so essential to be in this city, in Los Angeles, working actively in the entertainment industry, because if you're not able to build, or Toronto, you know, you're working in the entertainment industry in Toronto, wherever you want to work, you need to be in the city that houses that industry. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not, you can't build the professional network that you need, that you absolutely need in order to have a career. Yeah, and, and it's Twitter is awesome, Facebook is awesome, but cups of coffee and dinners and networking events, all of those things need to be milked, I think. Without a doubt, I always tell, you know, when I'm teaching a class or meeting with young writers, I always say the most, um, never, never underestimate the value of taking somebody to lunch or to coffee or to drink. And that means, first of all, that you buy. If you invite somebody to lunch or drinks, you're paying. Mm -hmm. Um, But I make it a point when I'm not actively in production. When you're in production, it's very hard to do lunches and drinks because you're working around the clock. But Mm. I make it a point when I'm not in production to try to take somebody to lunch or drinks at least four to six or seven times a week. Mm. And sometimes those are people I know and I'm maintaining a relationship and other times those are new people. But you're absolutely right. Sitting across from somebody, even just chatting and nurturing that friendship, it doesn't mean you're asking them for a job or asking them to read a script. It just means you're spending quality time with them and catching up and learning about them and their business, nurturing the relationship is probably one of the most essential parts of building your career. Excellent, excellent points. So to sum it all up, you've worked as an executive in development, as a writer, producer, unscripted, scripted, and along the way, you learned about so many parts of how, how Hollywood worked. You learned about a lot of different networks and studios. And at what point did you decide that you wanted to write a book? When I first started working in the industry at the Littlefield Company, I guess, I knew nothing. I started the Littlefield Company. I didn't know what pilot season was. I didn't know how staffing worked. I'd never heard of the upfront. I didn't know what an if-come was or an overall. I didn't know anything. And while everybody at the Littlefield Company was super helpful and uh, great teachers, I remember thinking, I literally was like, I wish there was a was there a book or like a handbook, a guide, something that I could read that would just tell me how all of this worked? And I guess that thought just always stuck with me. And then as I learned more and more and more, and there was no book out there doing it, uh, there was no book out there talking about this stuff, I decided I should be the one to write it. Mm-hmm. You know, and at that point, you know, I had been writing for 
magazines and writing articles that explained some of this stuff, but there was there was no one place that explained all of it. There was no there was no book, mm-hmm. and uh, so I guess I kind of wrote it so that all the other people like me who started out knowing nothing could have the handbook that I always wished I'd had. Yeah, and well, it certainly does that, and, and that's not an empty claim. I've I've read quite a few books on TV and feature writing, and um, I would say that that mo- and most of them are very practical. They're very focused on on the actual script writing part. There's a few that are that are more in terms of how to sell yourself and find an agent and that kind of thing. But I don't know of any other book that comes even close to giving you the map. Of, of Hollywood that yours does. Thank you. Well, we should say the title of it, which is Small Screen, Big Picture, A Writer's Guide to the TV Business. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I, there is no other book. And what amazed me about TV and Hollywood when I started working here was, and people never want to believe this, but it, first, it is a business. Mm-hmm. And there are very rigid patterns and schedules and processes. Things work in very calculated ways. Mm -hmm. And understanding how things work, you know, I think not only helps you excel or advance in your career if you're an agent or a manager or an executive, but how things work and the the business processes that things go through inform how TV shows are created and what works as a TV show and what doesn't work as a TV show. I think so often aspiring writers think a TV show is just, if I have a good story and good characters, that's all I need. Mm-hmm. And that could not be further from the truth. That's not what a television show is. Television shows work in very specific ways, and some of those ways are defined by the way the business works. So the more you can understand the way the business works, the better shot you have at creating a real television show and the better shot you have at selling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and actually, I think it it ties a little bit in with this. Um, you've done a number of articles at Script Magazine, and uh, I've heard from Joshua Stecker that uh, that they're actually the most visited articles on the website, <laughs> and uh, some have even caused a little bit of controversy. Uh, I'm going to mention yeah. a, a few of them. Uh, Am I too old to become a screenwriter? Why you shouldn't use a script coverage service? Uh, should I go to grad school? Why winning a contest rarely gives your script an edge? Do all screenwriters have to live in LA? Juggling writing and a job, figure it the bleep out. Um, and, and the, the thing that I love about these articles, and I think the thing that everybody loves about the articles is that you, um, it's no holds barred, but it's the truth. It's, it's just a, I'm not going to candy coat this. This is what Hollywood is about. And, and I know we were talking before the podcast a little bit about, um, about how there's, there are the exceptions, but I think that there's this perception. And, and, and to be honest, most of the magazines, books, um, DVD training, uh, pitch fests and conferences and all that kind of thing. 90% of it talks about, or 98% of it talks about features. And in features, there's this idea that I can, I can hole up in the middle of, um, I don't know, Alaska and, and write this amazing script. And I show up in Hollywood and there's this bidding war and people want to give me a million, no, a million and a half, no, two million for my script. And it's, it is almost like this lottery um, perception 
of of Hollywood. Um, which which to be fair, there there have been times that perhaps more times that that kind of thing has happened in features, but television is not like that. And television, yeah, sorry, keep going. Yeah, and 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 I think you you paint that picture that hey, <laughs> television is not at all like that. But elaborate a little bit. Television is is complete. First of all, TV and film are totally different, rarely overlapping worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people who aren't in Hollywood tend to think that Hollywood is one big bubble that contains movies and television. And look, obviously, to a certain extent, that's true. But the truth is, film is an industry and television industry is an industry. And there's very little overlap. First of all, it's completely different executives. It's complete. You know, the executives that work in film do not ever touch television and vice versa. Same goes with the world of agents. Actors obviously cross over. But even writers, for the most part, um, work in one or the other. Now, that doesn't mean that writers working in TV don't occasionally try and sell a movie but and don't occasionally do sell a movie. But for the most part, TV and film are two worlds that, that don't overlap very much. And they work totally differently. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and so every th- pretty much everything that people have learned about screenwriting, you you in maybe not throw it out the window, but you put it on a really high shelf, and then look at at uh, at TV writing really with a clean slate. Um, with that clean slate, breaking in as a writer in television, um, Reader's Digest, nuts and bolts. To break in as a writer in television, you need you need two things. One is you need exceptional writing talent, exceptional writing ability. And in order to prove that, you need to have writing samples. Traditionally, the writing samples that aspiring TV writers have needed to have in order to break in are you need spec scripts, which are scripts that you've written for shows that are already on the air. So you might write a spec of the Big Bang Theory, or you might write a spec of Criminal Minds, or you might write a spec of Burn Notice. Those spec, those spec episodes can never be sold. They won't be produced. They won't actually get on the air. They're simply to prove that you can write in another writer's voice and that you can tell a story using another writer's characters. Mm-hmm. The other type of writing sample that aspiring writers trying to break into TV need is original material. You know, something you have created and executed on the page entirely by yourself. Mm-hmm. This often, right now, what's in vogue seems to be original pilots. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, you'd write your own half hour or hour long, you know, an hour, you'd write your own cop show, you'd write your own sitcom. But, you know, original material can really be anything that shows off your storytelling muscle and your unique voice. It could be a movie script. It could be a play. I've read, when I was an executive, I've re- I read essays. Showrunners, producers, and executives tend to want to read something that's in the medium they're working in. So, you know, there are a lot of people who, who probably wouldn't read, necessarily read an essay or even a movie if they're trying to staff or hire for a TV show. They would want to read something original that's written for the medium of television. Mm-hmm. But the point is you need spec, spec scripts and original material to prove that you can write. Mm-hmm. The second thing you need 
in order to break into a television career is you need an incredibly strong network of professional contacts. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is the part where people or aspiring writers start to start to get prickly. And this is the stuff they don't want to hear. But the truth is Hollywood, and especially television, is an entire industry based it's based entirely on personal and professional relationships. Mm-hmm. And so you might be the best writer in the world. You might be Joss Whedon or Ernest Hemingway. But if you don't have professional relationships with showrunners, executives, producers, writers, agents, you are not going anywhere. And it's not just one relationship that you need. People always say, oh, well, my cousin's an executive at CBS. It doesn't matter. You need a network of professional contacts. And a network takes years of hard work and networking in order to build. Mm -hmm. So that's why I always think that if you want to be a television writer, the number one thing you need to do is get yourself to Los Angeles and start working in the industry. Because there is no better way to build your network of contacts than to to work in an industry, to, to work in the industry where every day you are meeting and working alongside other people who work here. You know, your Rolodex will just grow exponentially every day mm-hmm. because you're working here. And then, and also um, another great way to network is uh, writing fellowships. In one of your articles, anyway, you, men- you mentioned about uh, about these writing fellowships and how, how they can help, uh, particularly, I think, younger writers, maybe? Um, no, you know what? I mean, I think they're great for every writer, and some of them um, very actively try to look for diverse writers, mm-hmm. which which does not necessarily mean ethnically diverse. You know, some of these fellowships define diversity as, you know, older writers, female writers are sometimes counted as diverse. So mm-hmm. everyone is a little bit different. If you can get into one of these programs, they are a terrific help, mm-hmm. but they're incredible incredibly competitive. Um, you know, each of these programs only takes a handful, and by handful, I mean maybe like 10 or 15, 20 tops mm-hmm. people a year. So it's super competitive, but if you can get in, they're very, very valuable. Mm-hmm. And uh, and now, um, just this week, actually, there's been a whole pile of shows canceled, um, and then there's also a whole bunch of brand new shows coming out, and that all that changes the question, um, what to write as a spec, because what you might have wanted to write last week is now all of a sudden off the air. Um, and, of, and of course, it's never a good idea to try to write to a, a pilot that's, that's coming out because you have no idea if it's going to actually succeed. Um, what would you say are the, are the shows to spec right now? Well, right now, um, you know, for the past couple of years, strangely, spec scripts really have been out of fashion. Oh, yeah? A lot of people have not wanted to read spec scripts at all. They've wanted to read only original material. Hmm. Will that eventually swing back the other way? Maybe. I do know some execs who still say they want to read a spec. Um, I would say if you're somebody who wants to read a spec, who wants to write a spec right now, you know, mid-May 2011, and you're saying, thinking, what spec should I spec? Don't. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know and you won't know probably until next fall. Writing a spec is kind of a delicate balancing act because you want to write a spec 
of a show that is popular and respected by the industry, watched and respected by the industry. But there's often a difference between what is a very popular show and what's a show that's being buzzed about inside Hollywood itself. Mm. For instance, NCIS is like, you know, the most popular show on television. But it's not a show that gets a lot of attention or buzz inside Hollywood. I don't know anybody, honestly, who would read an NCIS spec, mm-hmm. even though it's a hugely popular television show with the rest of the country. You also want to write a show that's not, even if it's popular and even if it's respected by the industry, you don't want to write a show that feels too old or too stale. Mm. You know, The Office is obviously a popular show. The industry loves it. But it's now been around for like eight years. And Office Spec, you know, I wrote an Office Spec three years ago, mm-hmm. four years ago. And when I wrote it then, it was in season, what, like season three of The Office. Even then, people were sick of reading Office Spec. Wow. So if you're writing a show that is that feels too old or has too many specs out there, people won't read it because they're tired of it. So it's really about having your finger on the pulse of what agents and executives and showrunners are reading which is also why it's that, why it's great to have a job in the industry because you can ask those people and you know what's being read. You know, I would say looking forward to next year, what shows do I think might be speckable? Breaking Bad seems to be a popular one. Not anymore. No? Breaking Bad has been on for so long. I mean, look, it's a hugely respected show, but it's so old that I think it would be a tough sell. If you were to give your agent a new Breaking Bad spec, I think they would probably say, this is great. Could you have given this to me two years ago? <laughs> what about something? Maybe uh, The Good Wife? The Good Wife, maybe. Again, it's not a hugely buzzed about show in the industry, but mm-hmm. it's highly respected. It's very intelligent. So you might be able to get away with a Good Wife. Mm-hmm. I don't think a Good Wife spec is going to get you a job on The Walking Dead. Um, <laughs> well, Walking Dead actually is a really buzzed about one that's... Uh... Is and Walking Dead might be a good spec. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's sometimes tough to write shows that are really serialized because mm-hmm. their storylines and characters change so often. And Walking Dead only does like six or eight episodes a season. But Walking Dead is definitely buzzed about. I'll tell you what I would love to write a spec is Louis. Louis. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if you've seen Louis on FX, but it's Louis C.K.'s show and it is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the second season hasn't started yet, but if I were, go- and this is just me speaking for myself, if I were going to write a comedy spec, a half hour spec, I would probably write a Louis. Mm-hmm. What else? I, you know, it's really hard thinking what shows to spec in comedy right now because there aren't any huge comedy hits. You know, Modern Family is out there, and I know this year there were several Modern Family specs, mm-hmm. but by next year, it might be too old. You know, Parks and Rec really came into its own last year in this season. Mm-hmm. So you could maybe get away with a Parks and Rec spec, but by next year, that show is going to be a fourth season show and it's going to feel old. Even though, as far as I'm concerned, Parks and Rec is maybe the greatest show in television history. <laughs> well, and actually, that, that raises a very, very interesting idea. And this, again, as, as you mentioned, the sticky points that for, for some uh, budding writers is um i i've heard i've got a great spec but um you really need a portfolio of specs and this portfolio of specs you're continually writing to for and i i've heard of writers who have been around for a long long time very successful writers 
who still on their off times write more specs. Absolutely. That's because, I mean, for a number of, of things, because sh you don't want to look like a has-been, you don't want to look like the, 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 the shows you're specking are so old, so you're continually updating for, for new stuff. Um, but also, it, it helps to be able to broaden um, the shows that you can go for. Say, for instance, if you only have a Walking Dead and there's a comedy that comes up and you don't have a comedy spec, then you won't get staffed on that well, show. Well, I will say, look, for better or worse, comedy writers tend to be comedy writers and drama writers tend to be drama writers. I do not believe in the notion that a good writer can write anything. Mm -hmm. I teach a lot of classes and once was talking about this and had a guy raise, raise his hand and say, but don't you believe that really good writers can write anything? And I think that is the farthest thing from the truth. You know, Edgar Allan Poe was a brilliant horror writer, but I do not believe that Edgar Allan Poe could have written Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. Does that make him not a great writer? No. I think great writers have very distinct voices, and they know what those voices are, and they know where those voices work. So, so I think it's I think it's important to know what kind of writer you are. So is it made perhaps a better uh, uh, comparison might have been you've written a Walking Dead, but Good Wife is hiring. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so look, writer, comedy writers tend to be comedy writers, and drama writers tend to be drama writers, and they don't go back and forth very much. Although, look, you'll see comedy writers pop up on shows like Desperate Housewives or Grey's Anatomy, but for the most part, they do one or the other. Now. Where you might want to broaden yourself is, I was just talking to a friend the other day. He spent most of his career in writing sci-fi shows, and so he very intentionally wrote a spec for a character-driven show so that he could then go get a job on a more character-driven show. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so if you've written, say, a Walking Dead script, it's going to be very easy for execs and producers to look at you and say, oh, they're a sci-fi horror guy. So you might want to balance that out with, say, a good wife spec. You know, you might want to balance that out with a spec that sh that shows some other writing muscles. Mm -hmm. And it always, always helps to just be exercising your muscles. Once you finish a script, start your next one. Absolutely. Look, if you're a writer, even an aspiring writer, your job is to write. Hollywood is filled with people who claim they're writers and never write. Oh, man, I just read a great quote, and I can't remember who it was. It was Herman Melville or somebody said something like, the easiest thing in the world is not to write. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. It's true. I get distracted. I can't tell you how many times a day I get distracted by email or Facebook or Twitter. Writing is hard, you know, but, but if you're a writer, your job is to write, and your job is to be disciplined and to sit in front of your computer for eight hours a day and that doesn't mean your fingers are moving eight hours a day, but it means you're thinking about story or thinking about character or trying things and ripping it up or taking a draft of a, taking your 14th draft of the, of the spec script you're working on or the pilot you're writing and tearing it up and starting from page one. Look, I have a pilot deal with 20th Century Fox right now and I'm working on my latest batch of notes from them and they're really good notes. And as I dove into this batch of notes, I tore up you know, probably a good third or more of the scripts that I turned into them last time. And they're, they're, look, their notes were not extensive notes, but I knew I wanted to address them wholly and completely. And I ripped up a huge portion of the script and completely rewrote it. Mm -hmm. um, now I may end up putting back some of the things I took out, but if you're a job, if you're a writer, your job is to write.
nonstop. Yeah, very, very cool. Well, that's a, that's a good place to end the main portion, and we just have a few uh, fan questions, and then we'll uh, we'll close up. Um, uh, one is from Mona Grenier. Um, question for Cra- for Chad Gervich: What is the funding model for online series? How do the nets or do the nets make dollars on them? Um, and how how did you get yours going? Oh my God! Um, I know that's no a model. massive question. Um, there, 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 there is no model, and nobody's making money from this stuff. You know, they maybe make a few dollars or cents here and there, um, but there is no there is no model at all yet. And you know, huge props to whoever figures out the model because that's what everybody's trying to do. Mm-hmm. As for me and my the web series I worked on, I was hired onto them. One was. It was a Warner Brothers sitcom that was, well, you know what? This is kind of interesting. Warner Brothers had partnered with Unilever, the shampoo company. Really? And Un- yeah, and Unilever wanted Warner Brothers to develop this online sitcom for them that was basically the premise. It was called Wig Out, and the premise, was, which is the worst title ever, and it was basically Sex in the City set in a hair salon. No. Um, you know, so it was like the friendships of like three or four women as they all hung out in this hair salon, which also happened to have a bar. So they would hang out and drink and get their hair done and talk <laughs> about stuff and date. <laughs> and so the idea wasn't, you know, it didn't promote Unilever directly, but the idea was it was set in a world where Unilever products would kind of exist and it felt very Unilever-y. And so you, I don't know exactly, honestly, how the funding for that worked. I don't know if Unilever put up all the money or half the money or what. But I was just hired on as a writer to that show. The other web series I did, which was for Fox TV Studios, and was actually never produced, was actually something that had been, it was a partnership between Fox and Jose Cuervo. And they'd hired a team of other writers who had pitched on this and were developing it. And then those writers had been fired and I was brought on. And then I was brought on and ultimately, honestly, I was fired and it went through about seven writers before closing down the whole thing. Um, yeah, but the whole, the, the point of that is I was just hired onto that. And again, that was kind of a, that was a studio partnership with a brand. So there's definitely a lot of brand partnerships going on. I mean, if you have a web series idea, I would try to get it to a brand maybe that you think would be interested in it. You know, if you have a contact at, I, I don't know, uh, Procter & Gamble or Applebee's or wherever, you know, if, if you have a contact in the marketing or advertising department at any of these companies and you can get to them and say, hey, would you be interested in funding a web series? That seems to be how a lot of these things are working. That's that's actually a very interesting approach. Um and and it involves being a bit of an entrepreneur, but I think uh, a lot of beginning writers have to be entrepreneurs. Yeah, I, you know, I would also say if you have a web series idea that you want to do, just shoot it yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, get a camera and make it yourself. You know, design it and write it so that it can be done with very you know low budget with lower production values, and that doesn't mean it has to look cheap. You know, to me, kind of like the brilliance of the Blair Witch Project or Lonely Girl 15 or Paranormal Activity is those shows embrace their low budgetness. Like Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity are shows, obviously, but you know they were shot very low budget with very limited equipment, and they embrace it. I think a lot of times people doing something online want to do something that looks big and professional, like CSI or Lost. 
and they think they're going to put this online and have a big hit. But that's crazy because the resources that most people have to make something online don't allow you to do something that looks like Lost or CSI. Mm. Almost everything, and I will also say this, I think the creative, the aesthetic of the internet doesn't lend itself to something like that. Mm. Most of the stuff that is online, and I'm not even talking about scripted stuff, but when you go to YouTube, most of the stuff that's there looks crappy. You know, it's shot with a webcam or it's shot with a handheld video camera or it's shot with an iPhone. People are used to seeing that stuff online. Mm -hmm. And so I would say if you're going to, that's kind of become the aesthetic of the Internet. So if you're going to create something that is going to live on the Internet, even something that's as scripted and crafted as NCIS, embrace the aesthetic of the medium. Let it look like what people are used to seeing online. Hmm, interesting. Let it let, let it look raw. Let it look like it was shot with a handheld camera or an iPhone um, and figure out how can you shoot something that looks like that or is actually shot with an iPhone that also tells a story and feels believable. Hmm. I think half the reason, look, this is like five years ago now, but half the reason Lonely Girl 15 worked so well wasn't just that she was this adorable and fascinating character, but it looks like what people were used to seeing online. So you could believe it. You could buy the world of it. Hmm. You know, and then just beyond this was this great story of darkness and conspiracies and, and all of this. But in order to get to that, you know, it ushered you in by saying, here's a world that looks familiar to anybody who has ever been online before. Mm, very cool. And Mona Grenier also asks, you've worked in so many different genres, reality fiction, comedy, drama. How do you avoid being typecast in just one of them? I'll be honest. I, I, it's not really, uh, it hasn't really been intentional that I've worked in all that stuff. And honestly, it probably hurts me. I, I feel like I would probably be farther in my career if I were more pigeonholed. <laughs> It's true. I think, look, I, I don't regret a single step of my career. It's been a really fun, a really educational, a really challenging career and an unusual and unconventional career path. I definitely do not regret any of that. I love almost everything I've done and even projects I've worked on that weren't great. I learned something unique and something special. Having said that, if my heart lives in scripted comedy, in scripted television, would I be farther along if, rather than ever working on a reality show, I had spent time as a writer's assistant working on scripted shows? Honestly, yeah, probably. You know, if I wanted to be a reality producer, would I be farther along in reality TV if I had never bothered to work on some of the late night or scripted stuff I'd worked on? Yes, totally. So I think, I always feel like, the best advice I have to offer people is if you know what you want, you get further in your career faster if you are laser, laser focused. Mm. I don't think you speed ahead and get where you want to go as fast as possible by being a jack of all trades, mm -hmm. by doing everything, by juggling as many balls as you can. I think the more laser focused you can be, I, I don't think pigeonholing is a bad thing. I think the more you can pigeonhole yourself, the more you can say, I am the multi-camera family comedy guy. That's what I write. Hmm. I am the one-hour, slightly comedic horror writer. You know, the more you can pitch in yourself, I think the faster you go, the hmm. further you go, faster. Very cool. 
Um, and uh, another one from Eric Toms. He said, uh, Chad and I are friends, so please tell him I say hi. Um, please ask Mr. Gervich if it's possible to get a show on the air without significant writing credits, i.e., I guess, pilot, um, if you don't have any significant writing credits. Well, first of all, Eric Toms and I are not friends and do not trust him or anything he says. I'm <laughs> okay. kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. No, Eric is a, Eric is a, is a, is an old friend. He was actually the host and one of the writers of Reality Binge. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he's a good friend. So Eric, if you're listening to this, hello back at you. No, it is not possible at all to get a show on the air if you don't have significant writing credits. And here is why. In movies, if you're a movie writer, a screenwriter, you usually write the movie and then you hand it over to the director, the producers, the studios, and they take it from there. That can't be done in television for a couple of reasons. One is a movie is a finite experience. Once you write the movie, once you see the movie, it's over, it's done. That story will not continue. Those characters will not go on. It will never happen again. So the writer's vision is closed. But in a television series, a television series has to tell a story, and those characters have to go on and grow every single week, week after week after week, month after month after month, year after year after year. And so if you're the visionary, the artist who created this show, and it's stemming from your vision and your voice, they need you there to create and craft and guide that show every step of the way. So it's very hard in television to write, I, I always meet young writers who say, I just, look, I have no interest in being a television writer. I just have an idea and I just want to sell it and be done. That doesn't happen. They need you there. And if you've created something, if you've created a show, a property that's valuable, they want you there to help them tell those stories week after week after week. I always say if you've created a show that doesn't need you there, you haven't created a very good show and it won't sell. Mm -hmm. uh, studios and networks and producers are looking for shows with an incredibly distinct point of view. You know, look, think about Desperate Housewives when that first, when that show first came on the air. I mean, that was such a powerful, fierce voice that Mark Cherry had that while eventually, you know, he didn't run that show the first year and while there were other writers who eventually came on to work on that show with him, you couldn't have done episode two of Desperate Housewives if Mark Cherry wasn't sitting next to you. Hmm. That's the type of voice and the type of vision that these networks and studios are looking for. And when they find it, they're not just looking for an idea. They're looking for a writer who will stick with the show to guide it, to craft it every step of the way. Now, they'll partner you with a more experienced showrunner. Yes, yes. If you don't have the experience to run the show yourself, they will partner you with somebody. Yeah. Um, now, the other reason... Um, that, that, write, that it's very hard to get a show on the air if you have no writing credits, is running a show, producing a show, takes a vast amount of experience. As a showrunner, you, look, you're in charge of running the writer's room, which means you're in charge of hiring, firing, inspiring an entire staff of writers. But as a showrunner, you are also in charge of every single aspect of the show. You are in charge of the props department. You are in charge of the accounting department. You're in charge of the set design. You're in charge of casting. You're overseeing everything. 
you are responsible for bringing the show in on time and on budget. You are essentially the CEO of a 50 or $60 million company that's got, you know, it could have anywhere from 100 to 200 employees. And that is not a job that can be done by anyone other than somebody who has been working in television, working their way up the ladder, watching, learning for years. Mm. Now, if you don't have that experience, will they pair you with somebody? Yes. But the person that the networks and studios are really looking for is the person who is not only the visionary artist and creator who can bring them a new and original show, but is also the person who can run the show themselves. Mm. Which is why people like Seth MacFarlane and Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams, you know, these are huge creative visionary showrunners who can both run shows and have incredibly unique visions and voices. You know, they're the whole package, and those people are few and far between. So if you don't have any writing credits, I don't know, is it possible to tell? But maybe. I mean, maybe you can point to somebody who did it once. But for the most part, no. What, what about this? Since since uh, it is a situation that if the, uh, the, the network liked it, they would pair you up with a showrunner. But what if you actually... And again, this goes back to the networking thing. But if you happen to know a showrunner, and you pitched it to the showrunner, like say, for instance, Chris Fedak did with Josh Schwartz uh, for Chuck. Oh, if you know the showrunner and can go in with the showrunner, that's even better. If you can walk in there with a the showrunner attached, supporting your project, I mean, that's the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you, you have to know that showrunner personally. You're not going to get to Josh Schwartz if you don't know Josh Schwartz. Yeah. Or you know, have a brother or a sister or a best friend or a mother or an uncle who knows him personally and can get you in a room with him. But if you have that relationship, then absolutely use it. But here, here's the other thing. Writing television is a different art. It's a different craft than writing a novel or a movie or a short story or a poem. And if you've never worked in television before, people are going to listen. I guarantee you people are going to rile them and be like, this is one of those things that people are going to get angry about. But <laughs> if you've never worked in television before, you're probably not yet a very good television storyteller. That doesn't mean you're not talented. But television writing is, is a specific craft that has to be learned and practiced and worked on. And sitting at home writing spec scripts and writing pilots is great education and does help you learn your craft. But it only gets you so far. So I guess what I'm saying is the truth is if you've never written in television before, you're probably not ready or not able to create a show that is good enough to get sold and on the air. Mm. You know, just because, look, you might be an incredibly talented – you might be – there might be an 18-year-old student out there who's the top biology student in the world. But if he hasn't gone to med school, he's not yet ready to operate on somebody. In a few years, he might be a brilliant surgeon, but he still has things to learn. Which he fully understands, and I think that's important to to just – there's nothing wrong with being the top 18-year-old student. But that top 18-year-old student just understands he has to go to med school, has to do his yes. – etc. Yes, I think with creative disciplines and professions, people 
I think one of the things that make them different is great art, whether it's a beautiful painting or a wonderful poem or an incredible episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I use as an example because next to Parks, their Parks and Rec and Buffy the Vampire Slayer are tied as the greatest shows in television history for me. <laughs> I just have to say that. Anyway, I think one of the things that makes creative professions different is people look at a beautiful painting or read a great novel or watch a brilliant episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and it moves them. They feel very connected to it. It makes them feel a certain way. They see a reflection of themselves in that work. And so it's very easy for them to say, I can do that. I get this showrunner. I get this voice. I get this artist. I can do that. I should be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so they sit down. They write something. Um, maybe they read every book. Maybe they write a million things. But they think that but I think there's a sometimes a thought process that they think just because they're doing this or they want it badly enough or even because they understand it, they're at a level where they're ready to sell something professionally or work professionally or work in the business of art, of creation, of TV, of whatever it is. And that's not true. This is a business and you have to learn the business. And a business doesn't just mean learning how the business model works or how agents do their job. It means learning what happens in a writer's room and how stories are crafted by a staff of writers. And I think people often dismiss that there is a whole business element to having a professional TV writing career because they're so passionate just about the creative writing part of it. And that's only one part of it. You have to have the rest of it. And you can't have the rest of it if you're writing spec scripts sitting in your cabin in Alaska, no matter how good those are. You have to be in L.A. working in the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a very, very good place to end up. And uh, if this is not enough, then buy small screen big picture. And it's a it's a it's a it's a long read. It's a, almost 400 pages of just packed with information that'll that'll help you understand more of what Chad is talking about and also why he's talking about it in that way. Um, but uh, uh, just a few uh, things to end up with. Um, Chad is on Twitter at Chad Gervich and your website, chadgervich.com. You've got lots of great resources there. Yeah, it is with resources, uh, websites, links, services, tons of stuff. It's not a beautiful website because I made it myself and I need to redo <laughs> it, but it is, it is, it does have some helpful stuff out there. Yeah, very, um, very cool. Can I, mm-hmm. can I plug a couple events where I'll be speaking? Absolutely. I w- a couple events where, uh, where, where I'll be speaking and teaching if people are interested. So on uh, Saturday, June 4th, I'll be speaking at the Great American Pitch Fest, uh, here in LA in Burbank. And what's cool about that is it's completely free. Well, my, the seminar that I'm teaching is free. One of the cool things about the Pitch Fest is you can buy a pass to attend their paid classes and you can pay to it. Like Robert McKee is speaking there, Bill Pilar, Alessandra. Um, but there are also many, many free classes. And so I'll be speaking there that morning on pitching. And would love to see everybody out there. And then I am also speaking at the TV and Film Summit, 
which is June 25th and June 26th also here in L.A. Oh, and the website, uh, the PitchFest website is pitchfest.com, and the TV and Film Summit website is tvfilmsummit.com. Very cool. And very excitingly, on June 12th, um, Chad will be a special guest on the new TV Writer Chat. That's at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. Um, and just go to tvwriterchat.com for details. And you can literally, it's, it's, it's like a text chat that you can, you can ask questions to, to Chad. And the special guest topic will be writing the spec pilot. So very cool. Yep. So that's going to be very, very exciting. And, uh, and also, Chad, you offer, uh, individual consult, consultation as well. Uh, yeah, you, I do. When I'm not, uh, actively working on a show, I love consulting with people. I love I love working with writers. I teach a lot of classes, and you know I just love helping people and working with writers and story in any way that I can. Very very cool, and you can get all those details at chadgervich.com. Well, I know we've taken a lot of time here today. Um, I'm not sure if uh, if we've broken the record for individual interviews, but I think we're pretty close. Um, so well, I let's keep going. <laughs> so I super appreciate you taking the time, and I can't wait for that uh, that. Uh, TV writer chat on June 12th. That's going to be awesome. And um, so best of luck to you in, in your TV work. I will thank you, man. This was fun. This was, uh, this was really cool. Yeah, very, very cool. Okay, so we'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good, then. Okay. Thanks, Chad. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs> <laughs>